This is Ethan Alkind coming up on State of the Bay. 2023 has been the deadliest year on record for drug overdoses in the city of San Francisco. More than 800 people lost their lives last year, and nearly 80% of those deaths were linked to the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Tonight, we'll hear from a panel of experts about what should be done to address addiction and prevent more loss of life in our city. And for all the Star Wars fans listening, we'll also learn about the largest Star Wars memorabilia collection in the country, conveniently located in Petaluma, California. That's coming up after the break. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. This hour, we'll hear from the chairman and former president of Rancho Obi-Wan, a nonprofit museum housing the world's largest collection of Star Wars memorabilia. But first, San Francisco continues to struggle with the opioid epidemic. Local and state leaders, law enforcement and activists are all working to address the crisis. But despite their efforts, 2023 was the deadliest year on record for drug overdose deaths in San Francisco. Nearly 80% of the over 800 deaths last year involved fentanyl, which is a cheap, potent, and widely available synthetic opioid. San Francisco's death rate is now more than double the national average. Now, debate over how to best address this tragedy continues. Historically, San Francisco has focused on the harm reduction model, but critics argue that this approach is now outdated and is costing lives. At the same time, many public health experts claim that new punitive policies for dealers and users are regressive. They're hearkening back to the war on drugs of the 90s and the 2000s. But beyond the moral and practical concerns, we also have the 2024 mayoral election looming in San Francisco this November and addiction treatment and overdose prevention promise to be very hot topics for that campaign. So this hour, we're going to delve into the problem and consider solutions. And we're very pleased to be joined by Kevin Fagan, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, who covers homelessness and crime. Kevin is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Lost and the Found. Welcome to State of the Bay, Kevin. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined, we'll be hearing from in a little bit later, uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is also the author of Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And she's also the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which we interviewed her on the show about a, a year or so ago. So welcome back to State of the Bay, Dr. Lemke. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And we're also later going to be hearing from Vitka Eisen, who's president and CEO of HealthRight 360. That's later in the program. Uh, but first, I want to let State of the Bay listeners know we're going to open up the phone lines early tonight. Usually we wait about 20 minutes in or so, but we really want to hear from you on this topic. How would you like to see San Francisco address its drug addiction and overdose crisis have you taken part in a treatment program in the city? What was your experience like? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay, or you can email us at State of the Bay at KLW.org. So Kevin Fagan from the San Francisco Chronicle, let me start with you a series of questions here. Now, first of all, as I said, over 800 deaths, 806 to be precise, who died last year. So how did we get to this point? What factors have contributed to the increase in the number of overdose in San Francisco, according to your reporting on this issue? 
Well, it's been a long, slow train coming. Uh, I've been doing this since the, well, the a long time, the early 80s. So I've watched uh, uh, the the growth of this disaster. It was, uh, first it was heroin. Uh, no, first it was crack, then it was heroin. And before that, it was heroin again. The, the drugs always have their, their moment. And right now, fentanyl has its moment. But they're all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference with fentanyl, uh, which has surged in the last several years, is that it kills you quicker. It's easier to get the mix wrong. Just a, an extra grain can uh, can be fatal. And so mm-hmm. we've seen the number of deaths go from 2020 when it started to really hit its hit its uh, uh, you know apex uh, at uh, t- 726. We've got a chart here. Then it went. Then it fell to 642, 649 the next year, and then suddenly went up to 806 this last year. It's Trying to, to, to get your hands around a surging drug epidemic is really hard. They've been mm-hmm. trying uh, uh, police enforcement, trying more uh, drug treatment, which Vitka's shop has been doing uh, a lot of, heavily involved in it. Uh, it's, it's just uh, rampaging, and that's, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, all the various solutions don't seem to be able to stick the genie back in the bottle quickly well, on this. This is obviously a, a national problem, but as I mentioned, our overdose oh, yeah. death rate in San Francisco is outpacing much of the rest of the country. Is there any insight as to why this is particularly bad in terms of the death rate in San Francisco? Well, it's very easy to get drugs here. Uh, uh, like I said, you know, in, in the 90s, it was meth. Uh, the early thousands, it was heroin again. Uh, now fentanyl. I can walk out from my newsroom here uh, and in five minutes, I can buy whatever I want. And fentanyl is super cheap. Uh, it's made uh, heroin um, kind of irrelevant because it's cheaper, it's quicker. Uh, the only trouble is every time you load up a uh, a tin foil to to smoke up, you're you know playing Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, addicts think that they can get their proportions correct, and a lot of them do, but way too many of them don't. We have an amazing amount of, of overdose reversals uh, using Narcan here. If we didn't have Narcan, these numbers that look bad now would be uh, terribly worse. Well, this is what's so disturbing about fentanyl in particular, and it can be laced into things as well. So mm. people may not even realize what they're, uh, what they're taking. Uh, when they're doing some of these uh, synthetic opioids in particular. I'm curious, Kevin, if you can just describe some of the ways that the city and the state, to some extent, to the extent that they're operating in San Francisco, are trying to combat this crisis. Well, it's not like they haven't been trying. Like you say, it's, uh, it's, I I think one of the, the the first major thrusts was a couple of years ago when the Tenderloin uh, linkage center was opened up uh, near City Hall in UN Plaza. The whole idea was to make it a one-stop shop where uh, substance users could come in and get help for uh, rehab, uh, for housing, uh, for counseling, all the things that help reverse the trouble that put you into drugs to begin with. And not every addict is homeless. That's one of the uh, uh, the, the mis misinterpretations of of the crisis, but a lot of them are, and they are very visible. So this effort was, was launched by Mayor Breed. uh, And one of the, one of the aspects of it was a, it was in, in essence, 
the outdoor area functioned as a uh, safe use area, which is not really condoned by the state or the feds. Of course, uh, the city would like to to do that, but it's you know it was a spot where you could smoke up, shoot up, do what you need to do for your drugs, and be supervised. Uh, so that if you went into an overdose, you could be reversed. You could get as you're doing this, it, it became a safe place that gives counselors uh, a great opportunity to engage. This is successful in other parts of the country, New York and Canada. Uh, um, it just hasn't been utilized officially here yet. It was a mm-hmm. granted uh, experiment. It lasted about a year. Didn't get a lot of people housed, but it, it engaged with a ton of folks. And then last year, the city leaned in heavily on law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, enlisting the CHP, the National Guard, um, the city police, and really leaned in heavy on uh, uh, apprehending drug dealers in particular, but also drug users too, uh, in an effort to to you know do a police version of uh, of enforcement on this. Mm-hmm. There's been as long as I've been a reporter, which has been a long time, there have been debates and arguments over should you go heavy with the police should you go heavy with rehab um nothing seems to really you know stop the problem but rehab certainly is is absolutely key to the to the mystery here and the mm-hmm. city launched uh a a plethora of new outreach teams over the last couple of years to try to pull people into rehab now, the trouble with rehab, as in many areas of the country, is we don't have enough of it uh, to serve everyone who needs it. So it's, you know, it's battling with kind of one hand tied behind your back. Mm-hmm. But the city is is trying. The state did uh, give uh, money and assistance here to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's an ongoing battle, which Vitka mm-hmm. can speak long Long and yeah. long about. It's, yeah. Well, we're going to have VidCon in, in just a bit. Uh, you know, I know you've been reporting, Kevin, on this issue of homelessness and drug use for 30 years now. You referenced, you, you know, you've been around since the crack epidemic uh, first mm, took hold. Yeah. And it sounds like, based on what you're saying now, that you really feel like the rehab, the resources for rehab is really one of the critical issues. And do you see that changing anytime soon is there any hope on the horizon here that we're going to have you know finally an effective approach to address this long-standing issue well the governor is trying to steer more money this way and the city did pass a uh, a pretty famous around here proposition c uh, a couple of years ago that that has infused more money into the uh into the city coffers to address homelessness which ideally frees up some money for other services um, it's got to be in, you know, all hands and all aspects approach. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the the still raging debates in a lot of parts of the country is over whether we do harm reduction uh, or we do abstinence. And that means you let people come in while they're still using and you deal with them as you have them housed or in a, in a safe rehab facility and you work on their addiction. Uh, the the abstinence approach is no. You got to clean up before we we put you in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vitka will, I'm sure Vitka will tell you uh, of the harm reductions uh, benefits. Uh, it it's this is not a problem that gets solved overnight. And a lot of people no. want things to be uh, solved immediately. 
uh, that's not going to happen. It's got a, it's a long ball approach. And Kevin, last question for you. You mentioned this law enforcement turn we we're taking now. What do you make of this renewed emphasis on law enforcement? Do you think it's going to work? Well, it is making, it's having an effect. Uh, there are fewer drug dealers out there. Uh, one of the main organizations that's been uh, really peddling the dope on the streets, uh, you don't see as many of them anymore. It's the, it, we did a big project this past year on, the, uh, on Honduran drug dealers. And there's some controversy, of course, over uh, categorizing. But um, if you're on the street, you spend as much time on the street as I do and a few of my colleagues here, the hondos, uh, as they call them, are the big uh, control the drug dealing market. And that's what the feds believe. And that's what the city uh, uh, narc, uh, narcotics forces believed. And you don't see them as much. I walk mm-hmm. around and I talk to a lot of people and there is a visible effect on the street. Uh, and a lot of the drug users feel like they can't use as openly as they used to. It's, it's putting pressure on it. And uh, of course, as with many big pushes, uh, the jury's still out uh, for the ultimate effect, but it is having an effect. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Kevin Fagan, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you so much for your excellent reporting on this issue and also for joining us, of course, here on State of the Bay. We'll have to have you back to discuss your book, but thank you so much for joining us. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right. Well, Dr. Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Very uh, much thank you for coming on and being patient here as we're running through some of these issues with Kevin. I wanted to bring you into the conversation because addiction has largely been reframed now as a chronic medical condition rather than criminal behavior in the last two decades. And of course, now we're seeing this swing towards law enforcement, but I'm just curious if you can just explain how that shift happened to go from uh, addiction as a chronic medical condition rather than uh, criminal behavior. Well, I think it's accurate to conceptualize addiction as a chronic medical condition for a number of important reasons. Number one, We have a lot of neuroscience showing uh, physiologic brain changes as a result of chronic drug use. So we have biological uh, evidence uh, for a disease uh, pathophysiology. But also importantly, we find that when we treat people with addiction as if they had a chronic medical problem within the healthcare system, they have similar rates of um, recovery as people struggling with other chronic medical illnesses with a behavioral component, things like um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, certain forms of heart disease, asthma. So um, from both a sort of medical, biological perspective, but just simply from a practical perspective, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense to uh, reframe addiction as a disease. Also, importantly, uh, when we treated it primarily as a moral problem or uh, primarily as a problem of certain uh, um, intemperate individuals, um, and, uh, you know, we we exclusively used a law enforcement approach uh, that wasn't effective and led to certain uh, systemic racist kinds of practices. But I want to emphasize that just because a pure law enforcement approach didn't work doesn't mean that law enforcement has no role Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, 
helping uh, the United States and North America more broadly uh, turn the tide on our opioid epidemic. I think there's an important role for law enforcement to play in collaboration with healthcare professionals. We just have to figure out um, what what role that should be. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what role do you, do you think it should be? I mean, do you have any examples of success? How, how could you envision law enforcement being a constructive part of this, of addressing this challenge? Yeah, there's actually lots of examples of successful in, involvement of, of law enforcement. For example, initiatives that give people um, who have engaged in uh, petty theft and crime the option of getting treatment, mandated treatment, or getting a felony on their record. And we have many examples of uh, that kind of contingency management uh, effectively um, um, helping uh, incentivize people to get into treatment. And what we know is that um, people will recover uh, and uh, show improvements in their addictive disease, even if uh, the treatment is mandated. So it doesn't have to be voluntary initially for it to work. I think that's one of the great myths out there. We have things like drug courts, um, and those have been uh, shown in many different states to be effective. Again, the same idea. Um, You know, one of the symptoms of the disease of addiction is that people will tend to engage in criminal activity that they wouldn't otherwise engage in if their addiction was treated. And so, again, the criminal justice system becomes a very important vehicle to intervene at a critical moment in a person's life trajectory to incentivize them to uh, choose treatment and mandate that treatment and then offer them that effective treatment. Mm -hmm. So if you're just joining us, this is Ethan Elkind on State of the Bay here. We're talking about the addiction crisis, the fentanyl and opioid addiction and overdoses that we've been seeing at record pace in San Francisco. We heard earlier from Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle, and we're now chatting with Dr. Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. A little bit later, we're going to be hearing from Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360. Also want to hear from you, our listeners. We'd like to know from you what you would like to see San Francisco do to address this crisis. Have you been part of treatment programs? The phone lines are open now. You can join us at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can send us an email at stateofthebay at org. Well, Dr. Lemke, I was asking you about the distinction uh, between addiction as essentially a criminal behavior versus uh, a medical issue, and you, and you talked about why it's more practical to treat it as a medical issue. But I'm also curious how that works from a practical standpoint. I mean, what kinds of options are available to address the crisis when you look at it as a public health problem versus a criminal one that you wouldn't otherwise have? The first and most important step is to acknowledge that addiction is a chronic relapsing and remitting disease. So it's not the kind of medical problem that you can just get in there, do a one-time intervention and problem solved. We have to set up a medical infrastructure that allows us to take care of people with addiction over longer periods of time. Again, just like we we would for uh, things like chronic kidney disease or uh, chronic diabetes. Um, Then we have to make sure that we're implementing evidence-based practices. These are practices that have been shown uh, through multiple placebo-controlled trials across continents and time periods to actually 
help people with the disease of addiction. One of the most evidence-based interventions we have to date is the use of opioid agonist therapy. That's things like buprenorphine and methadone maintenance in the treatment of addiction. It's counterintuitive initially to think about using opioids to treat opioid addiction, but those two opioids, buprenorphine and methadone, have unique properties that make them excellent choices for treating the chronic disease of addiction. Number one, they last a long time in the bloodstream, getting people out of the cycle of intoxication, withdrawal, drug-seeking intoxication. Uh, They also, especially buprenorphine, have a ceiling effect on respiratory suppression, meaning that people are much less likely to accidentally overdose because they don't slow breathing and heart rate. Um, And buprenorphine, again, acts not only as an agonist at the opioid receptor, but an antagonist. So a patient Mm -hmm. taking buprenorphine, uh, if they take um, another opioid like heroin or fentanyl, will have less of a reaction because buprenorphine is blocking their opioid receptor. We also have a medication called naltrexone, which blocks the opioid receptor, which means that somebody taking naltrexone won't have the effects of an opioid if they take the opioid while they're on naltrexone. These are highly evidence-based interventions, and they should be readily available to people with opioid use disorder. Well, I really appreciate you giving us some specifics here, some solutions uh, to focus on. And I want to go to the phone lines now. We have Joe from Sunnyvale calling in. Joe, welcome to State of the Bay. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, I just wanted to kind of share my own personal testimony um, just to give some insight. Uh, I struggled with uh, hard drug use for, for a decade. You know, I was kind of in and out of different rehabs that my mom had sent me to um, in my teenage years and as an adult. Um, I also wound up in a rehab center, and I was in and out of jail. And truly, the, uh, the trick that I believe broke the curse was nothing close to as gentle as rehab. It was winding up in jail with people who had been doing what I was doing for decades longer than I was. And it was a really, really harsh reality that set me straight. Um, it was not gentle. It was seeing those who had continued along the path uh, beside me, and it was uh, it was a cold one, you know. But I still, to this day, believe that if I would have kept being sent to rehab and having more gentle approaches, that I'd probably still be out there stealing from people I love, um, doing everything I possibly can to get my next high. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, I really appreciate you calling in to share the story and perspective. And Dr. Lemke, I'm curious what your response is here. I mean, this is a story of the benefits of, you know, taking a, a harsher approach to this to this problem. What do you make of, uh, of Joe's story here? Yeah, I think Joe's testimonial is probably the most important message that anyone's going to hear on this show tonight, mm-hmm. because what he said is that what made him decide to get into treatment and work to recover from his addiction was real life consequences. And that is consistent with my two plus decades of working with patients with addiction. When there are real consequences that people care about, they are motivated to change, which again is why the criminal justice system in collaboration with medicine is such an important and vital part of helping people with addiction. And by the way, Joe's experience doesn't preclude 
the phenomenology of a disease process, right? But it's a unique disease. It's not a disease just like cancer or pneumonia. It's a biopsychosocial disease. There's a biological component, a psychological component, and a sociological component. So we have to intervene on, on all of those aspects. Thanks, mm-hmm. Joe. That was awesome. Yeah, and I appreciate that that call, Joe. And I want to take an opportunity now to introduce our our last but not least guest, Vitka Eisen, President and CEO of HealthRight 360, which is the largest provider of drug treatment in San Francisco. Welcome to State of the Bay, Vitka. Oh, thank you for having me. And Vitka, I have a number of questions for you, but first, I just wanted to ask if you heard Joe's call, just if you had any thoughts in response to his call, and then I've got some other questions for you, but I wanted to give you a chance to, to see if you had any, any thoughts to share on, on Joe's story. Uh, uh, I appreciate that. Um, I would never, like everybody's path um, and, and memories of their experience and their journey to recovery is their own. So I would never uh, in, invalidate that their story. I'm also a person with lived experience. I'm a former drug user from a heroin use in San Francisco. I got treatment in San Francisco, actually at the, the place I work. Health has been around for 50 years as, uh, as Haight-Ashbury uh, uh, Free Clinics and as Walden House. Um, and, and at the same time, I would say um, that using the criminal justice system overall has not actually proven to be beneficial as a system of care for lots of reasons. For one thing, um, using the criminal justice system to push people into treatment has caused untold harm on many communities, particularly black and brown communities. Um, and there are lots of um, problems sometimes with drug courts because it, you know, it potentially criminalizes people for pretty minor behavior and uses that as a way to get people into treatment. I typically say that most people get into treatment and stay in treatment because they made some deep connection with somebody at a perfect point in their in time for them and that that connection was real and 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 valid and meaningful so i worked in prisons and jails doing treatment there were lots of people who'd been in and out of prison and jails who continued to use drug, drugs who continued to use drugs and die of overdoses upon release from prison but i think it's a um you know, while there are certainly people for whom they'll say that saved their lives, I would ask that we look deeper at what really brings people into treatment and keeps them into treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, and Vitka, as I mentioned, you're, you run HealthRight 360, which is the largest provider of drug treatment in San Francisco. Can you describe some of the ways that harm reduction is used in addressing drug addiction in San Francisco right now? Well, you know, harm reduction becomes increasingly uh, important when you have um, the risks of people continuing to use drugs or, or death, as, as Kevin alluded to, so quickly uh, and with the toxic, the current toxic drug supply. Um, it's really important to remember that um, people go into treatment and uh, behavioral treatments in particular, and by that I mean in uh, places that do not solely um, opioid agonist treatments but also offer behavioral treatments. Many people leave those treatment programs prematurely. And now because of um, the risk of the, the the drug supply currently, you know, the risk of them dying upon de- a premature departure from treatment is very high. So that has created a distinct and, and critical need for us embedding harm reduction services across the entire continuum of care from really like light touch, low barrier services to even within treatment. Many treatment programs have historically, and I'm sure 
Dr. Lemke is, is aware of this, many treatment programs have asked have discharged clients from treatment because they have had a return to drug use. That is such a true story. It's kind of hard to believe if you think about it, because you're discharging people for the very symptom from which they for which they came to you. However, embedding harm reduction practices in treatment means we have to find a way to meet people where they are, to keep them in care, no matter what, because the risk of not keeping them in care is is potentially their death. The final thing I'll say is um, Kevin mentioned it. Um, the work we did as historically treatment providers, we were the uh, provider of harm reduction services in the Tenderloin Center that uh, that uh, Kevin referred to. Um, and in that 11 months, we reversed 333 overdoses. We made mm-hmm. deep connections with people who were there. And and um, and we had we saw 400 people a day every day. I would argue that we need more services like that to solve two particular problems that San Francisco is struggling with. One problem is that people use drugs and they use them out on the streets because they have no home, they have nowhere else to be. And two is that they're dying from overdoses. So Mm -hmm. operating places like TLC solves two of those problems. Mm -hmm. It brings them behind a fence where people are not in front of the theater or in front of city hall using drugs or in front of the federal building. And it makes sure that nobody dies. Mm -hmm. Over time, you build deep relationships with people, deep and meaningful relationships, and you help move them to a different place at the point at which they feel like, yeah, like I feel like I'm safe and I can maybe do something. I want something different from my life. And so over a period of time, we moved people into the somerized drug, uh, uh, sobering drug crisis center, moved people on to opioid agonist treatment, got people eventually connected into treatment, got care for people who had um, wounds on their legs. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that is about keeping people connected and in Mm -hmm. care. Yeah, well, I appreciate you explaining the services and the the real upside here, saving lives. If you're just joining us, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing solutions to San Francisco's overdose crisis with author and Stanford addiction specialist, Dr. Anna Lemke, and also Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of Health Right 360, the largest provider of drug treatment in San Francisco. We also do want to hear from you. What questions about fentanyl and opioid addiction do you have for Dr. Lemke? And what are your thoughts on the use of law enforcement in addressing this problem or the use of harm reduction, as we were just discussing uh, with Vitka Eisen? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. Well, let's Go back to the phone lines. We have Chris dialing in from San Francisco. Chris, welcome to State of the Bay. Hi there. Hi. What's your question for our, uh, our guests? Well, I just want to uh, make a statement of what, what I'd like to see. Um, I'm third generation San Franciscan. I have 15 months off drugs and alcohol through my stay at Health Right 360. I currently attend outpatient groups with the help of a wonderful therapist, Stuart Richardson. What I'd like to see is um, more rehabs. I'd like to see, like, my my experience at HealthRight, um, I'm not going to focus too much on the negatives because it was a place to start. Uh, but the food was terrible. I'd like to see, like, a dietitian working there. I'd also like to see individual therapy. People come into rehab and... 
they're pretty mauled up. And um, they had you follow, like, these modules that they went through. But there wasn't really any work on personal things that maybe an individual has gone through. I'd also like to see the city checking checking these rehabs or even taking some of the responsibility of having their own rehab. Like, what an idea that we don't farm it off to a nonprofit and then not have to carry the responsibility of the recovery. Another thing I'm going to keep going is that, um, you know, we have all we have these drug dealers in Tenderloin. I was in Tenderloin 27 years, and the police would just drive by like a quarter of 20 drug dealers on Hyde and Ellis, for example. Um, there's so much. The, you know, people walk, walk their pedigree dogs and walk over a live human being who might mm-hmm. possibly be dying from fentanyl, and the whole system needs to be really retooled. Yeah. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you calling in and sharing your experience. And Vitka, since Chris was part of Health Right 360, I just want to give you a chance to respond to, uh, to Chris's experience. Hey, Chris, I'm so glad you're doing well. I'm really happy about that. And uh, I'm so sorry about the food. Oh, goodness. Um, re- regarding um, the level of kind of monitoring and super- supervising we get, one of the things about um, nonprofit treatment that serves the medical population in San Francisco and in California, we're actually pretty heavily regulated. So the county comes in. We work pretty closely with the county and the state. They come in and monitor programs, unlike the kind of private for-profit treatment world. Um, we we use evidence based interventions and um, uh, get you know like I said we have licensing requirements and county requirements as well so um, I'm like I said I'm glad you're doing well uh, um, and um, I wish you all the best as uh, as you continue on your recovery journey. Yeah, thank you, Chris, again for calling in, Doctor Lemke. I wanted to go to you first of all. Just curious if you had any thoughts in response to uh, Chris calling in, but I also wanted to ask you. In addition, you you mentioned some of the solutions to this problem, and I'm just curious if you can also describe some of the barriers towards getting those solutions deployed, getting people the medication they need, the treatment they need. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Response to Chris, I think that it's wonderful that she's got all these ideas. And um, more and more, we are turning to people with the experience, the lived experience of recovery um, to participate as peer recovery counselors and otherwise guide policies. And I think that that's great that that that's happening. Um, I guess in terms of thinking about, you know, what works and what doesn't um, to to what Vitka was saying with the amazing work that she and others are doing with Health, Health Right 360, I think it's really important to keep in mind that treatment setting matters. So the kinds of interventions and policies that might work for one population in a given treatment setting, like, for example, a treatment setting where you mainly have an unhoused population living on the streets, is not going to be the same type of intervention that works for somebody in an outpatient ambulatory care, a clinic affiliated with uh, a hospital, for example. So, you know, Vitka was talking about how, you know, this was implied, Vitka, that you think it's terrible that people are uh, discharged from treatments uh, because they relapse to using. And and that makes a lot of sense to me in the kind of treatment setting, uh, you know, that you're working in. But I could also make a very good argument for why somebody who's living in a sober living house, for example, or who is in a, a um, a rehabilitation facility where the whole point of it is that people don't have ready access to drugs and then that person relapses to use, 
in order to keep the community safe in that sober living or in that residential treatment facility, those individuals do generally need to go elsewhere. So I, I just want to frame this and really highlight the complexity of these issues. Also, I want to get back to harm reduction because I think that that we're we're not we we need to spend more time really um, educating people about what we're talking about here. Originally, harm reduction was the idea that okay. At the same time that we're trying to get people into treatment for addiction, let's do what we can to reduce the harms related to their use. So this would be things like clean needle exchanges, giving people clean needles so that if they're going to shoot up, they're at least not going to transmit HIV or other infectious diseases. But over the past 10 to 15 years, harm reduction in some settings has really transformed, the meaning has transformed from being, okay, let's try to limit harm while we get people into treatment for this terrible disease of addiction to, oh, let's give people drugs because drug use is actually a lifestyle choice. So mm-hmm. in some settings, and this is this is what I think is not working, if you're asking what's not working, when we conceptualize harm reduction as somehow supporting a person's right to use drugs and essentially invalidating addiction as a disease, I think we're really not respecting that individual's right to live disease-free or to be in recovery from their addiction. I would also say that what is not working is when we increase access to drugs. For example, in Oregon, they decriminalize possession of small amounts of illicit drugs in the hopes that, again, in the, this new spirit of harm reduction, uh, that somehow because law enforcement wouldn't be as much involved, that somehow people would just be able to use their drugs and there would be less harm. But in fact, they've seen an increase in overdose deaths, soaring rates, and now they're dialing back on those policies. So that, that's just food for thought. You know, when, when we're when we're thinking about harm reduction, as as I think Vitka was describing it, as a stepping stone to treatment, that is all good. But when harm reduction just becomes uh, a way to give people easy access to drugs, uh, I don't think that works. All right. Well, I appreciate that that perspective, and I do want to hear Vitka's response to that, but I also want to go to the phone lines here because we have uh, a, a different Chris from San Francisco dialing in. So, Chris, I want to welcome you to State of the Bay. And I want to express my gratitude for your choosing two such uh, experts in the field. I'm a big fan of Anna Lemke's and following her for years. I'm a psychologist. I've worked in substance use disorder treatment for many years, I think HR360 is doing phenomenal work, but I want to address the difference between mandating someone to a program. You can mandate them to a program, but you cannot mandate them to actually engage in treatment. You cannot mandate change. So I've dealt with so many people, and I guess it's just, you know, it's just part of a job description uh, who are just showing up uh, to appease their PO and not actually doing any work. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Uh, Vitka Eisen, let me give you an opportunity to respond to Chris's comment there. What, what's your response? I think Chris has made a really good point. Um, 
that you can make some sh- people show up, but you can't make them uh, want to be in recovery or stop using drugs. Um, and one of the things that's, you know, I think you're, you may be aware that people who are in jail or incarcerated ha- have a high risk of mortality from overdose death upon release. Well, similarly, people who are in treatment and leave treatment prematurely have a similar high risk of overdose death. So, you know, I think we have to be really careful about making policy decisions in which you might be putting people in greater harm. I will also say, I, you know, I work in the treatment and harm reduction community. I've never heard somebody say, um, you know, this is, this is just cool, come to San Francisco and do drugs. We are facing um, an unbelievable torrent of tragedy, of tragedy. And so, and we keep trying to do the same stuff we've always done. We think, well, maybe we've gotten too loose on things. Now we got, that's the problem because now it's okay to do drugs. It's, well, listen, it's never been okay to do drugs. There's still a ton of stigma out there. There's a ton of um, vehement uh, frustration, anger towards the people who are using drugs on the street. Uh, that kind of condition drives shame. And shame does not bring people and hopelessness. It does not bring people into care. We only ask that we try some things different than the same things, the same things that we have done for so many years. Um, one of the best things we've done in some of the work that Dr. Lemke has done is around integrating opioid agonist treatment, which is really one of the most effective means for preventing overdose death for people who use opioids. Uh, and so I think that the city has done a great job of trying to make opioid agonist treatment as available as possible for people, regardless of whether they went into behavioral treatment or not, from wherever they are. I think that's one of the things you say, what do we need to do more of? Absolutely. I, I wish the, I, I know that the feds have released even some more restrictions, some of the other issues that were restricting opioid agonist treatments. Um, and I wish they would do even more. I wish methadone was even more available and easier to prescribe than it is today. Mm-hmm. But we just cannot keep doing the same things we've always done and expecting a different result, um, yes. not in the face of death. Well, I appreciate uh, appreciate that response. And Chris, thank you for dialing in. This is State of the Bay, local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing solutions to San Francisco's overdose crisis. Stanford addiction specialist, Dr. Anna Lemke and Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, the largest provider of drug treatment in San Francisco. We were going to break our, our, right now and go to a different segment, which we promoted here at the top of the hour, but we have got a really a lot of listener response to this and a lot of issues to cover. So we're going to postpone that segment and spend the rest of the hour talking about this really critical issue. And uh, speaking of listeners, I want to mention one listener comment uh, who writes in P2P meth is allegedly resulting in severe mental health issues and homelessness with the prominence of meth and mental illness on the streets, how can we not consider coercive methods to get people into treatment? We have another listener who asks, I have a friend who became addicted to many drugs in San Francisco in the 2000s. He had dual citizenship with Sweden. He tried to get clean here, but couldn't do it in the short time that rehab rehab was available in Sweden. He reported that they had a year available and that worked. So is that amount of time available still an issue? And are there international models to look to for inspiration? So Dr. Anna Lemke, I wanted to uh, direct that one to you. 
Uh, is length of time an issue? And what about international models we could be learning from? So length of time, there's lots of evidence to show uh, that, uh, for example, if you go to a residential treatment facility where you don't have access to your drug of choice, uh, staying there longer usually leads to better outcomes for certain populations. Um, also, I just want to say, you know, the the uh, the caller's comment about um, drug use or substance use disorders and severe mental illness like schizophrenia. Um, you're absolutely right. A lot of our uh, recovery models depend on somebody uh, being able to engage in the recovery process. And if you have somebody with a severe mental illness, uh, that's going to really challenge their ability to do that. And drugs are going to make it worse, which is why I do uh, agree that um, coercive or mandated methods to get people into long-term treatment, especially people with drug addiction and severe mental illness, is absolutely vital. The problem is we do not have the beds. We do not have the hospital beds. We do not have the rehab beds. And that's one of the huge problems. And I wish that California would dedicate more resources toward creating long-term facilities and long-term beds, especially for the severely mentally ill and addicted. Well, that brings us back to that point that Kevin Fagan from the Chronicle also mentioned, that we need more resources for rehab. Well, I want to go to the phone lines. We have Jordan calling in from Michigan. So, Jordan, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you for joining us. What do we have, Jordan? Jordan, are you there? All right, I think we've lost Jordan. Uh, Well, let's see. Vitka Eisen, I wanted to... Uh, let's, I'm hearing something in the back, but I'm not sure if uh, I think he's not with us. So, Vitka, I'm going to turn to you and ask you this question around, well, first of all, international models that you might be drawing from, but also what are some of the resources that you think really need to be directed towards this issue? Um, thanks. Um, so I do think that uh, we do struggle with a lack of resources. And one of those has to do with the lack of um ability to attract and retain qualified staff. Um, you know, even if we, uh, you know, the, the governor has a proposal uh, uh, on the ballot in March, um, build out more mental health facilities. And I tell everybody, uh, you know, a bed is just a piece of furniture if you don't have staff to to, to, to work there and bring care to people. And so we have, it, there's still issues with um rates and payments that would allow for us to be able to attract, recruit, retain, train the qualified staff that would meet the moment. I think this is not just a San Francisco issue. It's a state and national issue. So I think definitely we need to address the, some of the resource issues. I think um, we should follow some of the, um, the science, uh, more of the science, uh, which includes, you know, regarding the last caller talking about, uh, or at least the person who, I think they texted in um, concerns about P2P meth. And mm-hmm. um, and so just to be clear, P2P meth is just meth. It's it's the same meth, has the same impact, just it's slightly different. It uses different precursor chemicals, but it, the result is it's meth. And the state and the county have city, San Francisco City, have piloted some innovative responses, which have been incredibly effective. And that is called contingency management. So the city is piloted. We're, we're operating as is the San Francisco AIDS Foundation are operating contingency management programs, which incentivizes people to stop using methamphetamine 
um, that it pays people for uh, for not using meth. Now, some people react to that and they go, why should we be paying people to do this? And we say, because it's working. Um, and we have countless stories. We have a high rate of participation in the program, which means a high rate of people coming into treatment, connecting with their counselor, connecting with their therapist, um, and um, abstaining from using meth or using less meth. And so uh, we want to we spread those programs and make them available because they are effective. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to read a, a statement from Jordan from Michigan. Couldn't get Jordan on the line, but this is what Jordan writes. I'm 47 years young and never tried cocaine until after college when I used coke as a recreational party drug. I'm a firm believer that there needs to be differentiation between levels of addiction. Addiction is unique to the individual. Outcomes and treatment cannot be the same for every user. Different people need different options to recover and people who are not addicted cannot understand addiction and the genetics underlying addiction. Dr. Lemke, I'm curious your thoughts in response to, to Jordan's comment here. Yeah, I think Jordan's absolutely right. Addiction is a spectrum disorder. Uh, so there's mild, moderate, and severe addiction. Um, and even within those categories, what works for one person may not work for another, which is why it's important as we're thinking about creating access that each individual has access to the full range of evidence-based treatments, both medications as well as psychosocial interventions um, and the combination thereof. And I think that's a, a really important um, right that people have should have. Well, thank you to Jordan for uh, writing that income. Sorry, we couldn't get you on the air. We also have another listener who makes reference to Mayor London Breed's proposed ballot measure that would result in welfare recipients being screened and treated for illegal drug addiction or else they would lose cash assistance. The listener writes, I'm in full support of this idea. I have a hard time believing that someone who is addicted to meth or fentanyl is spending $700 a month on needs other than drugs but would love to hear the panelists' thoughts. Uh, Vitka, wanted to hear from you on that one. What do you make of the proposed ballot measure that uh, that Mayor Breed is uh, is putting on the ballot in March here? Um, I think the proposed ballot measure will increase the number of people who are homeless in San Francisco, and I I really don't think that that is the intended. I would that's 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 the intended outcome. That nobody wants to see that in San Francisco. Um, taking away people's benefits uh, will not push them into treatment I, any more so than arresting them has. As you know, San Francisco has been arresting many, many more people for, um, for drug use, for drug possession. Uh, and yet the number of people who've come into treatment has not gone up. None of those people have accepted treatment despite the coercive criminal justice system. And the number of overdoses has actually spiked. So I would hardly think, and I don't think there's any evidence to support this in other states where this has been done, that this mm-hmm. is going to move people into treatment um, but what it will do, again, is potentially make more people homeless. For, for people who are uh, housed, that losing the $600 a month benefit that they get may very well result in them losing their housing. And so I, I, I don't think it's, it's well thought out. And I don't mm-hmm. think it will have the, concept, the, uh, the outcome that is expected unless the outcome is just to purely punish people. Mm-hmm. Well, and Vicka, you mentioned very few people with substance abuse disorder seek treatment. Dr. Lemke, can you explain why that is? That's what I, my understanding is as well. Well, a big issue for a long time has been stigma as well as lack of access to treatment. And as Vicka pointed out, the lack of a workforce, a qualified workforce 
um, to address the problem. But I think what's often not mentioned and is really important is that the state of being addicted is a state of ambivalence in which pe- people both want to stop using their drugs of choice and want and don't want to stop using at the exact same time. And that's where good training comes in to help people address the ambivalence of both wanting to continue and wanting to stop. Um, and it's for that reason that it's a very complex and difficult disease mm-hmm. to treat. And just regarding, you know, the the welfare idea, I've never heard of any evidence to support that. Um, And until there is such evidence suggesting that might be useful, um, I probably, you know, wouldn't advocate for that. On the other hand, uh, there's also uh, not reliable evidence supporting safe injection sites. And so I think that's important to highlight because we, we often act like there is. But if you look at, for example, safe injection sites in Canada, they have not reduced overdose deaths in those geographic areas. What the numbers that people quote is the numbers of overdoses they reversed in the injection site itself, which is sort of patently obvious because you're right there, you know, with the uh, with the opioid overdose agent. But but the the real, uh, you know, outcome measure that counts is whether or not safe injection sites actually reduce overdoses in that broader community and help or encourage people get into treatment for addiction. And so far, we haven't seen any evidence uh, showing Mm -hmm. that that it does that. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. We're almost out of time. But Vika, I wanted to give a chance to respond to that about safe injection sites. What's your take on that uh, proposed solution? Well, I'd be, uh, I think if you did a study and closed all the uh, supervised consumption sites in, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, I would imagine you would see a, a horrific increase in overdose deaths. It's really difficult to, it's not a, a, a pure good study state, if you will. Um, uh, what I do know is in the two months after PLC closed, there was a significant increase in overdose deaths in that immediate area. Yeah, you're right. I can't, you know, that cannot purely, that's not causal. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think if you didn't have the place, if you didn't have the service, how much worse could it have been? That's, mm-hmm. I think, is the question we have to ask. And Vidka, we're just about out of time. But I did want to ask you about fentanyl specifically. How how are your drug services treatment changing with the reality of fentanyl on the streets? And maybe a related question: Is it true that fentanyl can be laced with marijuana? There's a lot of fear about dr- other dr- recreational drugs being uh, tainted by fentanyl. I think you mean um, mar- marijuana tainted by fentanyl. Not yeah, sorry, sorry if I <laughs> missed reverse that yeah, order. That's okay. That's okay. Um, um, you know, I don't. I think often, with in terms, yes, there's a risk of um, cross contamination uh, from one drug to another, which is um, which is of serious concern. Uh, and so, some people can overdose. But they think they're they're what we would call opioid naive. They have no tolerance built up to opioids. They're using a different drug, cocaine or methamphetamine, and the, it was it was like measured on the same scale at the same baggies or whatever, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a cross contaminant which could cause um, an overdose death, which is why um, San Francisco mm-hmm. does have a drug checking program for people to be able to see what's in their drugs. You know, it's yeah. changed treatment. The way that uh, fentanyl's changed treatment is that the risk of death for people inside of treatment who might have a brief recurrence of drugs, single return to drug use, one re- occurrence, has gone up 
And so it has caused. Roth, but unfortunately, kind of, uh, we're, we're out of time. I appreciate you uh, explaining oh, sure. a little bit of that. And we obviously have a lot more we could discuss. But I just want to thank you both, Dr. Anna Lemke, Thanks. Professor of Psychiatry, Stanford University School of Medicine, and Vitka Eisen, President and CEO of Health Right 360. Thank you both so much for joining us for the full hour tonight. Thank you. And I also want to acknowledge Kevin Fagan, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, who we heard earlier in the hour. And that's it for State of the Bay. We hope you'll join us next Monday. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.